Daniel Barnett here. Enrolment for the 2025 Virtual Employment Law Academy is now open. Go to www.virtualemploymentlawacademy.com for more information. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Employment Law Matters. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. In this episode, you'll learn all about the Uber and Aslam case in the Supreme Court, which is the lead case on employment status decided earlier this year, and about the three cases on employment status decided since Uber, which follow on from it. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. There have been a number of cases over recent years which have examined the status of individuals working in the gig economy, and a common thread running through them is how businesses often create documents to convey the impression of an independent contractor, whereas the reality shows otherwise. A key gig economy case involved Uber, a major proponent of the platform-based phenomenon so typical in gig economy cases. The case started in the Employment Tribunal in 2016, and it moved through the tribunal and court system until 2021, when the Supreme Court released its judgment. Uber lost in every forum. Now, in a moment, I'm going to examine the Supreme Court's judgment, as it provides an interesting insight into the approach the courts now take in establishing the status of individuals. What follows is a slightly abridged extract from my new book on employment status, which was published in May, May 2021, and is available on Amazon or via go.danielbarnett.com slash books. There's also a direct link in this episode's show notes. In the Uber case, the working practices examined by the Supreme Court were those that operated in London in 2016. Uber says it's since changed some of its arrangements with drivers, although it's not clear to what extent the new arrangements would produce a materially different result. Uber's initial reaction at the time of the Supreme Court's judgment in February 2021 was to state that the judgment only applied to a small handful of drivers in the test cases under 2016 terms and conditions and not to any other drivers in 2021. But by April 21, Uber had changed its position to say that it intends to make sure that all drivers are compensated for arrears of unpaid annual leave and shortfalls in the minimum wage. As is well known, Uber provides a ride-hailing service which is accessed by users via a mobile app. The drivers, of which there were around 40,000 in the UK in 2016, also access the app to view requests for bookings, and they're free to choose when they make themselves available to accept bookings. The drivers use their own cars, whether they're owned or rented, and they have to satisfy certain criteria set down by Uber relating to their age, their health, their car type, and so forth. Uber usually sets the fare for each trip according to a set of variables, and the app can be used to allow the passengers to tip the drivers, and the drivers and the passengers can rate each other via the app. The drivers have been treated by Uber in various jurisdictions as self-employed, including in the UK, until a group of London-based drivers brought various claims in the Employment Tribunal, which required them to be workers for the purposes of the Employment Rights Act 1996, 
the Working Time Regulations 1998 and the National Minimum Wage Act 1998. The Supreme Court's judgment was concerned with whether, for the purposes of the statutory definition of worker, the claimants were to be regarded as working under contracts with Uber, whereby they undertook to perform services for Uber personally, or whether they were performing services for and under contracts with passengers through the agency of Uber. Essentially, Uber presented itself as a technology provider acting as a booking agent for drivers who were approved to use the app. Uber said that when a ride was booked through the app, a contract was made not between the driver and Uber, but directly between the driver and the passenger. The fare was calculated by the app and paid by the passengers to Uber, which deducted 20% and paid the balance to the driver. Uber characterised that transaction as a service fee charged to the drivers for the provision of the technology and other services. The Employment Tribunal, the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Court of Appeal each found the reality was that the drivers were working for Uber as workers. The Supreme Court agreed, and it's the Supreme Court's judgment that I'm examining here. The drivers could work when they wanted, and as much or as little as they wanted. They could provide services for other organisations, including direct competitors of Uber. They could choose where to work in the territory covered by their PHV, their private hire vehicle licence, and they weren't required to wear any kind of Uber uniform or display any Uber insignia. They were told how to behave, however, and statistics were kept on passengers' ratings and comments about drivers. Statistics were kept on how many trips were cancelled and how many were declined when the driver was on duty. Penalties were applied to drivers who cancelled or declined too many trips, and drivers were subjected to a quality intervention if their average rating fell below 4.4 over 200 trips or more. A failure to improve would lead to them being removed from the platform and their accounts being deactivated. And deactivation could also result from misconduct. Where Uber decided to refund a passenger, the fare to the passenger would typically be deducted from the driver's payments, but not always. Sometimes, but not always, Uber would pay the drivers the cost of cleaning a vehicle that had been soiled by a passenger. There were written agreements in place between the drivers and Uber which were wholly inconsistent with the existence of any worker relationship on the part of the driver. The services agreement setting out the contractual arrangements said the driver was a customer and said that Uber agreed to provide electronic services to the driver and that the driver in turn agreed to provide transportation services to the passenger. Under the agreement, the driver agreed that Uber did not provide transportation services. The agreement also said that Uber was the driver's payment collection agent and that payment by a passenger to Uber was the same as payment made directly to the driver. The fare was determined by Uber as a recommended amount, which the driver could reduce but not increase, and fares were paid weekly to the driver, less the service fee. Uber could change the fare calculation at any time and could reduce any fare or cancel any fare if a passenger complained. Separately, there were rider terms between the app user, the rider, the prospective passenger, and Uber. And these terms designated Uber as agent for the driver, acting as an intermediary between the user, the rider, and the driver. The rider terms granted a license to the user to use the app. 
Now, the Supreme Court said the nature of the relationship had to be inferred from the conduct of the parties. An important feature of the context against which the parties conducted themselves were the legal requirements governing their respective operations in London. Uber was required by law to hold a PHV operator's license to accept bookings, and the drivers needed to hold a PHV driver's license to drive the passengers making the bookings. The Supreme Court said there could be no agency agreement between Uber and the drivers because there was no contract between them where the driver authorised Uber to be its agent. The fact that the rider terms purported to say that couldn't be effective because the driver wasn't a party to the rider terms. So the Supreme Court concluded that Uber entered into contracts with passengers as principal and not as the agent of the drivers and said it couldn't perform its contractual obligations to its passengers nor its regulatory obligations as a licensed operator without employees or subcontractors to perform the driving services for it. And therefore, as a matter of logic, Uber had to enter into contracts for some form of driving service with the drivers. The Supreme Court also examined an older Supreme Court case of Autoclens and Belcher, which said that in employment cases, courts can focus on the reality of the situation if written employment documentation doesn't reflect reality. And the justification for this approach was that employment rights asserted by claimants aren't contractual rights, but statutory rights. And courts have to decide whether claimants qualify for those statutory rights, irrespective of what the contracts say. The Supreme Court also said that you shouldn't even take the contract as the starting point in determining whether an individual fell within the definition of of a worker because the unequal power balance between the individual and Uber meant the individual had little or no ability to influence the terms that give rise to the need for statutory protection. And the court found there were five aspects of the Employment Tribunal's findings, which it said demonstrated the transportation services performed by the drivers and offered to passengers through the Uber app were very tightly defined and controlled by Uber, pointing to the drivers being workers. First, and of major importance, the money paid to the drivers for the work they did was fixed by Uber and the drivers had no say in it. The notional freedom to charge a passenger less than the fare set by Uber was of no possible benefit to the drivers because any discount offered would come out the driver's pocket and there was no chance, given the way the system was organised, of a driver establishing a relationship with a passenger to generate future custom down the line. Uber's control over remuneration also extended to fixing its own service fee and the right to decide itself whether to make a full or partial refund of a fare to any passenger. Second of all, the terms on which drivers perform their services were dictated by Uber. Not only were the drivers required to accept Uber's standard contract, but the terms on which they transported passengers were also imposed by Uber and the drivers had no say in them. Third, although drivers had the freedom to choose when and where to work, once a driver was logged onto the Uber app, their choice about whether to accept requests for rides was constrained by Uber. One way Uber controlled that was by controlling the information provided to the driver, in 
particular not telling the driver of the passenger's destination until the passenger was picked up, and therefore the driver had no opportunity to decline a booking on the basis they didn't want to travel to that destination. The second form of control is exercised by monitoring the driver's rate of acceptance and cancellation of trip requests and the scores that the passengers gave the Ubers, and essentially shutting out as a penalty those drivers who don't reach a score that Uber thought satisfactory. The Supreme Court said that placed drivers in a subordinate position to Uber. Fourth was the degree of control, the significant degree of control Uber exercised over the way drivers delivered their services. The fact drivers provided their own car meant they had more control than most employees would have over the physical equipment to perform their work. But Uber vetted the types of cars that could be used. The technology that was integral to the service was wholly owned and controlled by Uber. When a ride was accepted, the Uber app directed the driver to the pickup location. Although it wasn't compulsory for a rider to follow the route indicated by the app, customers could complain if a different route was chosen and the driver bore the financial risk of any deviation from the route indicated by the app if the passenger hadn't approved it. The fifth significant factor was that Uber restricted communication between passenger and driver to the minimum necessary to perform the trip, and it took active steps to stop drivers establishing any relationship with a passenger that could extend beyond the individual ride. Once a request is accepted, communication between driver and passenger is restricted to information relating to the ride and is channeled through the Uber app in a way that stopped either from learning the other's contact details. Likewise, the collection of fares and the payment of drivers and the handling of complaints were all managed by Uber in a way designed to avoid any direct interaction between passenger and driver. The court went on to find that the employment tribunal was entitled to find that time spent by the claimants working for Uber wasn't limited, as Uber argued, to periods when they were actually driving passengers to their destinations, but included any period when the driver was logged into the Uber app within the territory in which the driver was licensed to operate and was ready and willing to accept trips. So that was an extract from my new small book on employment status, which is £20 on Amazon, which you can find by going to Amazon and searching for Daniel Barnett employment status or by going to go.danielbarnett.com slash books. Again, the link is in the notes to this podcast. Now, since Uber, there have been three cases decided on employment status, which I'm going to tell you about briefly after this. This episode is supported by Beverly Hills Bakery, offering worldwide gift delivery of baskets and tins filled with freshly baked mini muffins, cookies, brownies and cupcakes. A perfect thank you gift for your staff. Find out more at beverlyhillsbakery.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, beverlyhillsbakery.com, or by using the links in the show notes below. First of all, the question has arisen since the Uber judgment of whether Addison Lee drivers are workers. And in the case of Addison Lee and Langer, the Court of Appeal said yes, they were, refusing permission to appeal from the decision of the Employment Appeal Tribunal. The Court of Appeal said that every time a driver logged onto the Addison Lee app, there was plainly a contract in place. And the Employment Tribunal's factual finding 
that during the contract those drivers were workers was unassailable. The Court of Appeal thought Addison Lee's submissions to the contrary had no prospect of success and refused permission to appeal, but unusually gave permission for the judgment about permission to appeal to be cited in subsequent cases. The second case is called Varnish and British Cycling. Now, where a written agreement says that a professional sports person isn't an employee and is paid by lottery grants and sponsorship, must that person be considered as an employee or worker, contrasted with genuinely self-employed? And the Employment Appeal Tribunal in Varnish and British Cycling held no. The facts were these. The claimant was a gold medal winning track cyclist. Her contract with British Cycling wasn't renewed in 2016. British Cycling said that was due to performance, but Ms Varnish said it was an act of discrimination and unfair dismissal. An employment tribunal decided she was neither an employee nor a worker and so couldn't claim unfair dismissal or discrimination and she appealed. The Employment Appeal Tribunal conducted a wide-ranging review of the mostly historic decisions on employment status and included the following four observations. First of all, the requirement that there be mutuality of obligation is simply a refinement of the ready-mixed concrete requirement to provide work and skill to an employer. Second of all, the dominant purpose test of what the main reason is for a person's engagement can be used to distinguish between workers and non-workers, as well as employees and non-employees. Thirdly, the starting point should usually be that an employee has less bargaining power than an employer, and the lack of ability to negotiate individual terms normally points towards, rather than away from, employment status. And fourth, a reminder that after weighing up the competing factors pointing towards employment status and pointing away from it, a tribunal should stand back and look at the whole picture before reaching a conclusion. And the tribunal in this case decided the use of public funds from the National Lottery to provide coaching, the lack of remuneration from British Cycling to Miss Varnish, and a grant from UK Sport that took the place of wages was inconsistent with being an employee or a worker. And the Employment Appeal Tribunal decided that conclusion was open to the Employment Tribunal where there was no suggestion that the written agreement between the parties was a sham. Third and finally, are foster carers workers for the purpose of trade union listing and recognition? Well, yes, held the Court of Appeal in NUPFC and the Certification Officer, upholding an appeal by the National Union of Professional Foster Carers that the certification officer's refusal to place it on the official list of trade unions was a breach of Article 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights, namely a breach of their right to freedom of assembly and association. Now, the certification officer's refusal was based on previous case law to the effect that as the union's membership of foster carers weren't workers, it couldn't be listed as a union. The Court of Appeal decided that the decision to refuse to list the NUPFC as a trade union interfered with the union and its members' freedom of association, so it was a breach of Article 11, which wasn't justified. The court held that Section 1 of the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act should be read to extend the definition of workers to people who are parties to foster care agreements 
under the Fostering Service England Regulations 2011, even though they don't work under contracts. The court also noted that the NUPFC could apply for certification as an independent trade union and compulsory recognition agreements, but the judgment's limited to meaning that foster carers are regarded as workers only for these specific purposes to ensure their Article 11 rights. The court suggested the situation might require a review of foster carers' status by the Supreme Court or that the government might consider bespoke legislation for them, giving them workers or even employment rights. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, please do subscribe, if you don't already, to Employment Law Matters on the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also leave a review. I do read every review that's lodged. Next week's episode is an interview with Michael Reed, the legal officer for employment at the Free Representation Unit, in which he and I discuss his eight top tips to win an employment tribunal claim. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.